I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee, therefore, from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are therefore not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we consider the words that come from you today, we pray for understanding as to who you are, what kind of relationship you're calling us into today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over this month of February, we've looked at several themes relating to the topic of love. Uh, last week's theme was that love is flexible and dynamic and adaptable, open to change. Three weeks ago, we discussed that love requires both action and attitude. Uh, both of these teachings, as part of this February sermon on uh, series on love, can be found at adventhope.org, along with a whole catalog of other teachings from a number of other people. And so we hope that you will go to adventhope.org and take advantage of all of those. Uh, in the setup to our text of emphasis, though, today, we are reminded, so in the verse just prior to what we read just a minute ago, we are reminded that when a person embraces the work of God in Jesus in their life, they are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord. These are some theological concepts, but the idea is that, that uh, God does something in a person when, he, when they, they, we embrace him, and we are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. Apparently, though, this idea was misunderstood in the Corinthian church of the first century. And the implication was that people were making bad decisions based on their understanding of uh, freedom, the freedom that comes from being justified and washed and sanctified. So this is the first century a church, or one of them, found in the city of Corinth that this letter is uh, written to. And apparently there were some misunderstandings as to what happens when God does his work in a pe person's life and relating specifically to the idea of freedom. Uh, in clarifying this idea of freedom, Paul refers to two uh, Corinthian slogans. 
Actually, there are a number of slogans in the first uh, passage here that we'll, we'll get to. There are actually three to- total. But there's one, one in particular we want to look at in starting, starting today. Slogan. The slogan is this, I have the right to do anything. This was apparently a slogan either of the city of Corinth or the church in Corinth. They had this idea that we have the right to do anything. This may have come from their understanding of the teaching of Paul, quite frankly. We have the right to do everything, or some of your versions may say, everything is permissible for me. The slogan actually sounds like something Paul himself would assert, but Paul is quick to clarify here by asserting two qualifiers to this slogan. All right, so the the church and or the city of Corinth had these slogans, I have the right to do everything. I have the freedom to do everything. Everything is permissible for me. So Paul needs to clarify because there have become some problems with this, this, this slogan. And he says in verse 12, I have the right to do anything. So he's quoting their slogan. I have the right to do everything you say, but not everything is beneficial. And then he quotes the slogan again. I have the right to do everything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Not everything is beneficial, and I will not be mastered by anything. So these are Paul's uh, clarifying uh, issues to this slogan, I have the right to do uh, everything. And these actually lead us to questions that we can use still uh, today when we think about actions and behaviors that we might feel compelled in our freedom our freedom that comes from, from grace, our freedom, we have qualifiers, qualifying questions that can help us to make the right decisions. And the questions are, is it beneficial and will I be mastered by this? So the first, the first question that we can ask ourselves when we are approached by an idea or thing that we might want to participate, is it beneficial? It's important to note that this idea of being beneficial wasn't just beneficial personally, but it's beneficial for you individually, but also as part of a community of, of faith, as a body, as the body of Christ. Is the decision that you're going to make beneficial both to you as an individual and to the larger community? And the second question, will I be mastered by this? These are two ideas that Paul gives us to put just a little check on just the idea of, of freedom, because people were making uh, bad decisions based on the idea that they can do uh, anything. And so these are two essential questions that can help us to understand how much freedom we really obtain from circumstances or behaviors. So the implication, I think, is pretty uh, clear. Uh, the freedom to do things should be guided by how much true freedom we are really going to uh, gain or receive from them. So God wants us to live in a free, uninhibited relationship with him that is void of fear, guilt, shame, etc. But there are things that we may do that seem like they are going to bring freedom or be be a part of freedom that are actually going to enslave us. This is what Paul is is saying. So we, we need to measure our decisions by evaluating, is this beneficial for me as an individual? And is it beneficial to the community I'm a part of? And is this something that could potentially become my master, control me, in other words? Um, I took my kids to see a film last week. And uh, 
as we were going to do this, we decided to get popcorn. And, you know, the, the popcorn is a very big thing of popcorn. And then I don't know what inspired me to do this, but I also had purchased a three-pound bag of gummy bears. That's a lot of gummy bears. And so I took my gummy bears and I got the popcorn. Now, my kids are at the stage in their, their life where they do not have the amount of freedom that I have. So I assigned them, I don't know, let's say 10 gummy bears each and a portion of the popcorn. But I had no such restrictions on the popcorn and the gummy bears. And so they were eating nicely and enjoying the, the film, and I was exercising my freedom <laughs> to eat as much popcorn and as many gummy bears as I possibly wanted. Now, I'm not making this up. I ate a lot. One, two pounds? I don't know. It was a lot of pounds. There were three pounds in the bag. There were not three pounds when we were done. I didn't measure it because I was actually nervous to measure it. Anyway, at the end of this film, I did not feel very good because the combination of lots of popcorn and lots of gummy bears in your stomach is not great. Anyway, the idea that sometimes when we think we are expressing our freedom, uh, and we express it, it also often leads to things that are not beneficial for us. This is what Paul is getting at. You, you are going to express, sometimes you're expressing freedom because you say, I can do anything. I have the grace of, of God with that. I can do anything. And he's saying, you've got to check yourself by, is this beneficial for you and as an individual and as part of a community? And will this master you? So this leads to the problem for us. The, the reality is, as human beings, uh, doing what is uh, beneficial for us and, and avoiding things that are going to master us, oftentimes it's really, really difficult for us. In fact, it almost seems like we are inclined toward things that aren't beneficial for us and may lead us to become slaves, if you will, uh, to it. This isn't just a matter of knowledge, by the way, uh, either. You know, we live in the information age where we have access to more information about how to live and how to do things that are beneficial to us and how to avoid being mastered by things, and yet we are more inclined than ever to do things that are hurtful for us and that lead us to uh, being enslaved, if you will, or controlled by things. And so, again, our question is, what is it that draws us to things that aren't ultimately beneficial and may, in the end, end up mastering us? What is it that, that leads us to do things that aren't beneficial for us and may end up mastering us? I think there are a number of answers to that question, but there are a few I want to share with you today. First of all, through life experience, we have developed habits and tendencies that just aren't beneficial for us. That's just the reality. Through our life experience, some of us have just learned things that are, you know, maybe at the time seem good, but they have created habits that are not beneficial and end up maybe even uh, mastering us. There's a, a great book that some of us shared together. We have an afternoon class Kyle's going to tell you about later uh, that happens to teaching time in the afternoon. This last fall, we read together the book Willpower 
instinct. Uh, one of my hero researchers, Jane McGonigal, and she writes about this study on popcorn, somewhat ironically, and she says this, or, or, or the, the research says this, a study out of Duke University has shown that people who are in the habit of eating popcorn at the movies will eat it whether it's fresh or stale. Okay, so what they did, so if you, you have in your mind, you have the habit that when you go to watch a movie that you eat popcorn. They, the researchers did this. They took one group and they said, we're not going to tell them, we're just going to give them stale popcorn. So all the popcorn in the, in, the, in the thing, the machine, they gave out, it was still like a couple days old. And they gave that out and they gave that to people and they went in and then they gave another group fresh, delicious movie popcorn. And they found that whether the popcorn was stale or fresh, people ate about the same amount of popcorn. Gross, stale popcorn, fresh, delicious popcorn. The implication was it's the habit of eating popcorn during the movie that kicks in, and whether popcorn is good or not, you just keep uh, eating it. So we have these habits that end up kind of controlling us that we don't even think about. Author Susan uh, McQuillan says this, once a habit is established, you will never completely unlearn it. You can stop overindulging. You can pointedly replace bad habits with better ones. But every habit you've ever picked up is there, somewhere in your neural network, just waiting to be rediscovered. That's why, while it's not a realistic, immediate solution for most people, just saying no is your best first defense when you finally start to get a bad habit under control. So she's saying, look, I mean, you know, for those of you, you neuroscientists here, you can tell us more that there are these neural pathways that are created in our brain by things that we do, and that these become more ingrained in, your, in, our, in our brains, literally like pathways, and uh, breaking those can be very difficult, and when those things are not benefic beneficial, they end up doing things to us or, 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 or encouraging us to do things that aren't helpful for us, it's very hard for us to to break, and therefore we can feel like we're being mastered by them. So McQuillan says, look, you don't, for, you don't forget these things. These are pathways that are in your brain so you can adjust and you can make new pathways, but they're always there, which explains why it's very easy to go back to a bad habit, because our brains remember this pathway of doing things. And so we have these tendencies, we have these habits that have been developed for some of us over many, many years, and so we end up doing things that aren't beneficial and may end up mastering us. Secondly, we do things that aren't beneficial and may end up mastering us because uh, some things that aren't beneficial in the long term do seem uh, really helpful in the present. I mean, when it comes to the text of emphasis today, uh, that's a part of what's going on. I mean, the text of emphasis mentions uh, sex, and, you know, the reality is that sometimes sex can feel like a very present issue. And so when that's the, the case, and whether it's sex or anything else that seems very pre present, sometimes bad decisions and bad behavior seem like a good idea at the moment, but in the big picture aren't a great idea. You know what I'm talking about? So some things that are, aren't beneficial in the long term, in the big picture, seem really to solve a need in the moment. And so we make decisions based on the short term, 
not able to back up and say, what is going to happen here in the long term? Thirdly, when it comes to this issue of doing things that aren't beneficial and may even end up to us being mastered by them, we underestimate the value of our bodies and therefore partake in things that will be harmful for them. Uh, another Corinthian slogan that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is this, and this is in verse 3. He said, you say, talking to the Corinthians, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So apparently, the Corinthians were relating the relationship between the stomach and the food and food to the body and sex. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and they're using this analogy, is, is like sex for the body and the body for sex. And so Paul's refuting that idea. He sees that these, these two, these, these, they're not the same. They're not the, the same. The, the body and the stomach are not the same. The relationship the two, between the two is completely uh, the, different. He, he goes on to say, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So the body, so the stomach has a very particular ro role to process food and get the nourishment of the food throughout the body, but the body has a much larger purpose than just sex. So you, you can't relate these two. He goes on to say, our bodies have a higher calling. God has redeemed our bodies. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself, your physical body. I mean, Paul talks about the body a lot, but the body is really, really important to Paul, the physical body. And he's saying, look, the body, when your body, when you accept and embrace God as, as, as God, you become a part of the larger body. Your body becomes part of the larger body, the body of Christ. Shall then I take the members of Christ and unite them with someone who is for hire? That's the question Paul is answering. And so we, sometimes we don't understand the value that God has on our actual physical body. And some of this goes back to history. You know, there, Christian history even, there's the ancient idea that really comes from the Greek, Greeks, the issue of dualism, that our bodies and our souls are two different things, that they exist separately. This is not a biblical idea, even though it has penetrated much of Christianity that the body and the soul are different. And so that's the whole idea that when you die, your body goes in the grave and then your soul goes somewhere else. But that that's is Greek dualism. The Bible idea of the body is that the one and the same. You can't have a body without the soul. They're one and, and, and equated with each other. And that God is not just coming to redeem a person's soul, but he's coming to heal and make new a person's body. That the, the resurrection that Christians wait for is a resurrection, again, not just of a person's soul, but of the whole person, including their uh, body. And so sometimes we do things that aren't beneficial for our bodies because we underestimate the value of our bodies to God. God is saying our bodies are part of, our physical bodies are part of the body of Christ. You know, by the way, this is, I, I see Marjorie here, this is part of the reason why Avenus in particular said, hey, look, our health is important because our bodies mean something to God. Our physical bodies, and we should, we should be thoughtful about our, let's not undervalue our, our bodies. And, and Paul is specifically calling this out. Marjorie, I pick out Marjorie because she's our health ministries 
director and doing some exciting things, already making plans for some exciting more uh, health-related uh, topics. All of this important and has a role for spirituality because God cares about our bodies, according to Paul. Okay, finally, finally, why do we do things that aren't beneficial for us and may even lead us to be mastered by things outside of ourselves? Because sometimes harmful things seem very cool. Now, this sounds maybe a little bit trite, but just bear with me for a moment. I find it most interesting in the depiction of our mythic, our contemporary mythic characters, that a good contemporary mythic character almost always has to have some kind of tortured dark side, right? The, the mythic character that has a tor uh, tortured dark side we relate to. There was, a, there was a, uh, a debate a few years ago when they were reviving the character of Superman in, for film, and some people were saying Superman is just too boring. He's too much of a, a, a boy scout. In fact, this was alluded to in the most recent film when Batman and Superman are together. Batman calls pejoratively Superman a boy scout. And the idea is that Superman has no flaws. He has no brooding dark side. You know, we want our heroes with a brooding dark side. They're, they're always, there's something that they're struggling with innately, and we kind of are like, we're intrigued by that. Now, a, 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 someone in film like Lincoln could say, you know, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Every good film has to have an antagonist, right? I mean, you want an antagonist. You want the, the bad, and sometimes you want even your good guys or your good women to have a, a little bit of a bad side. That's what's intriguing about them. And so that may be true for film. I'll, I'll give you that. I mean, I don't know. Most films have an antagonist, and most films today even have an, uh, an antagonistic side to the, the good character, if you will. But there is, it seems like something about us that just like a little bit of bad. We almost idolize a little bit of bad. And so the person who has this dark brooding side is just a little bit more intriguing. And so for, even for us, we value a little bit of struggle in our own experience. And so it's almost, you know, good if there's something we're struggling with and we can't overcome, that adds a, a, a sense of mystique to our uh, character. And yet, ultimately, this is kind of ridiculous. I mean, why would we want to hold on to things that aren't really helpful or not beneficial to us? But there is a mystique behind the, 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 the brooding, struggling, uh, difficult situation that a person might be in. And so with all of these uh, realities at play that uh, we are almost... From, from birth, inclined toward things that are not beneficial to us and maybe even become a master over us. The, the recognition that some things that aren't beneficial in the long term seem really beneficial in the short term. The reality that we often overestimate the value of our own bodies and therefore partake in things that aren't beneficial or are going to be masters for us. And this sense that sometimes we even think kind of bad things are even a little bit intriguing or cool. Well, all of this in mind, what hope do we have of actually living in freedom? I mean, Paul's whole assertion is that he's, God is calling us into a relationship with Jesus that leads to freedom, true freedom, where we aren't mastered by anything and we are doing things that are beneficial to ourselves and our existence and community and not hurtful to them, and yet we are inclined to the things that aren't beneficial to us and lead us to be mastered. So, what hope do we have?
How do we learn to become inclined to things that are actually beneficial to us as individuals and as a community? How do we overcome the things that are mastering us? And by the way, I know that most of you today here are mastered by something. There is something that if you think very hard about, and some of you probably, most of you don't have to think very hard, there's something that just has its hold on you. It's holding you down and holding you back and brings shame and guilt and maybe even fear in your experience. And that's not how God is wanting anyone to live. His call to us is not to have fear, to live without fear. And so how do we break ourselves of things that aren't beneficial to us and how do we overcome the things that are mastering us? Well, it starts with this good news. There is one who has done what we have not done, who has not been mastered, who's lived not only for the, the beneficial nature of himself, but for his community. In Jesus, we find this hope. Uh, we're told that Jesus, from the very earliest days, was inclined to do that which was beneficial for himself, but more importantly, for the community, for people other than himself. In Luke chapter 2, we read that Jesus went and he spent some time with his family in Jerusalem, and his family took off, and he was left there, in essence, teaching in the temple, and his family, his parents got very nervous, and they go back to him, and the teachers are amazed at who he is and what he's able to teach because he has not been hindered by the tendencies of doing things just for himself and things that aren't beneficial to him or to the community. And so we're told in verse 52 of Luke chapter 2 that Jesus from that point forward continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus didn't have the, the tendencies and, the, and the, the habits that we have been burdened with or that we've developed. Jesus was also not compelled by things that were strictly to meet his present need. In Matthew chapter 4, we read the story of Jesus going out right after he was baptized. So Jesus himself was baptized. He goes out and he's out in the desert for 40 days. And he does not eat for 40 days, which is unbelievable. And after the end of the 40, or to the end of the 40 days, we're told uh, that he had fasted and he was hungry, which seems like an understatement. I mean, I've never fasted for 40 days. I've fasted for a couple days, and I was very, very hungry. So 40 days, I mean, we know that 40 days of fasting, things are happening in your body that are ultimately not going to end out well unless you start eating soon. So he was legitimately hungry, and it says that the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So the tempter knows that Jesus has uh, power to do this. And so he tempts him with this power. You're hungry? Make these stones bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus had a very, very real need for food at this point. And he was tempted to use power uh, to create food from stones. But see, he was not compelled by the current immediate need for himself. He was able to look at the big picture, and so he denied that. Jesus also understood the value of his own body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're told about the night before Jesus' death, when he gathers his disciples together, and they're eating a meal. 
and he breaks bread with them. And he says about the bread, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And he said this, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this and drink it in remembrance of me. See, Jesus understood the value of his own body. He understood what his body, his physical body meant for himself, but more importantly for his community. He knew that by the, what was to happen the next day, that by the breaking of his body, this had impact and power to help people. And finally, Jesus could see through the things that master humanity and that could potentially master him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, the second or third part of that story when Jesus is out in the desert, again, we're told that the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, said the devil, if you will only bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. See, Jesus could see through things that were going to master him. He knew that if he were to give in to Satan in this moment, that he would be mastered, that he would be controlled because he had, had, had given in, so he was able to shun this. So Jesus has done what we have not been able to do. He's overcome the things that we have not been able to overcome. And the case that the Bible makes is that because of what Jesus has done, once a person acknowledges what he's done, they can be empowered to do things that we can't do on our own as well. Once we embrace the work of Jesus, because we haven't done it, we haven't been able to overcome the things that are hurtful to us and the things that are master us, but Jesus did. And so once we acknowledge that, express faith in that, God is empowered to start working in our own experience to give us power outside of ourselves as well so that we can be transformed and changed ourselves. Our text of emphasis today said, by his power, God has raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? God raised Jesus from the dead, and when a person accepts his work, God is able to raise them from the dead. In other words, when a person believes in the work that God has done in Jesus, God is enabled to disentangle a person from their ideas and practices that are harmful for them and start working transformation toward new life. Now, there are two metaphors that are prominent in the New Testament. We just mentioned one here, the idea of death and resurrection. The idea that once a person recognizes what God has done in Jesus and that Jesus has done what we have not been able to do every step along the way, once a person acknowledges and recognizes this, God is able to then to resurrect someone. So resurrection, so death is one of the metaphors. Another metaphor is one we've also talked about in our text of emphasis today, the idea of slavery and freedom from slavery. So these are the two practices. Once a person recognizes and acknowledges what Jesus has done on our behalf, God is able to resurrect them, and God is able to free them from slavery. Listen to this. This is Romans chapter 6 and what, Romans chapter 6 and verse 18 first for the metaphor of death. 
If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your body. So the idea, again, is you connect with the God who worked in Jesus, and God is able to resurrect you to new life that allows you to start evaluating toward Paul's metric of what is beneficial for you and for your community and avoiding those things that are going to bring mastery over you. And that leads to the second metaphor of slavery. Paul continues again in Romans chapter 6. He's describing these two metaphors. He says this. This is Romans 6.15 about the second metaphor of slavery. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. So these are two metaphors. The idea of death, that once a person embraces what God has done in Jesus, that they will experience death, but that death leads to new resurrected life, a new kind of life. In other words, God can transform and change you, and you can start being able to really evaluate what is beneficial to you and to your community, and what is going to be able to master you and avoid those things. But also, you're going to be freed like a slave from those things that already master you. So if you're mastered by something, if there's something that just has control over you, and again, if you are human and you are here today, the likelihood is there is something, whether it's, it's sex or power or the desire to be someone you're not or whatever it is, you've got something that has some mastery over you. And you've probably recognized by now, if you've been with it long enough, that it's not to your benefit to continue in this way that it's holding you down, it's holding you back, and you have shame, and you have a fear, and you have guilt from these things, but you just keep back into it. The hope of the good work of God in Jesus is that we can overcome through him that which we will never overcome on our own, and we can be freed from the slavery of the things that master us. Just a little testimony. I need, we know we need to land the, land the plane. So I can say this now without being a little bit of a twit because when I do it two months ago, I feel like twittish. But, so just bear with me. So I don't know, four or five years ago. So I used to be a huge football fan, professional football. And I know some of you are professional football fans here. God bless you. I love it. For me, it was a little bit of a, a problem. So since about nine, my, my team in 1982 won the Super Bowl. Does anyone know who won in 1982? Kyle knows. He was not born yet. Who was it, Kyle? The team from Washington. See, he's a good, thoughtful person and didn't mention their, their full name because there's some controversy around. The team from the National Football League team from Washington in 1982 was a, it was a foundational moment in my child, they won then, they won again in 1987. Brian, I know you're another fan of the team from Washington, and you did not get to experience these glory years of 1982, 1987, and 1993. I enjoyed all of those, and I was a very big 
National Football League fan, but about five years ago, I started to have a little conviction. This is just for me. I'm not saying everybody's got to you know, give up on football today, but for me, a little bit of conviction that something was a little off. And I, first of all, I was spending too much time watching uh, football because I don't, you can easily, the whole day of Sunday gone, and now it's like every day of the week, so you can just lose a lot of time. It's like a sink. But for me, I felt a little conviction. This is, and, and you may say, what's the big deal? Football, for me, it was a little bit of an issue, right? So about five years ago, I started having a little conviction. It really started with all the concussion stuff, and I started to think about myself. I don't know that I really want to watch people like ruin their lives by banging their heads together. You know, so that just, you know, or, you know, these guys are like 40 or 50 years old and they like can't remember their names or whatever. It's horrific. Anyway, I had a little conviction about this. So I was like, man, but I, this has been such a big part of my experience since 1982. And series of events have just continued to feel conviction. And one year, about four years ago, at the beginning of the season, I don't know what happened. Actually, I remember that a guy came out at the beginning of the season and he was in a gladiator gear, uh, one of the, the football players, he was in gladiator gear, and it was just like this just violent thing, and I, something just clicked in my mind, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that, and I mean like cold turkey, I went from like full on, I mean I used to go to the opening game in Washington DC every single year for like five years in a row, I was just done, I'm like I'm done with this, now I can only attribute that to the fact, in my opinion, that God did something in my experience, like God was just like no, no, no. And for me, it was a big deal. Again, I'm not condemning those of you who are football fans. Amen to that. But for me, it was a big deal. So boom, choosh. And I look back and I see, you know, this works. The idea that God can come in, in you and take something that is very near and dear to you, but ultimately is probably not that beneficial to you. It wasn't for me. And may not be beneficial to you as a community and make changes that you're not going to make on your own. This is the promise of the gospel. That God, and so I don't know what your deal is. What is holding you back? What is, is, is mastering you? But I, if you're human, you've got something. And the promise of the gospel is that God can work in you to resurrect you to new life. That God can free you from that which is, has mastery over you. Now I think this is the best news that you'll ever hear. Listen, Every philosophical system, every religion on the planet has a sense of how you're supposed to live. But most of them leave you with this. In essence, hey, get your act together. Fix yourself. Spend time off praying or doing or whatever and meditating and just become one with whatever and, and, and overcome this issue. For me, the power and the promise of the gospel transcends just me fixing it because I actually stink at fixing these things on my own. But the promise that as we embrace God's work in Jesus, that he is then able to work in me to start transforming me and giving me new life, this is good news. The, 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 the promise that the thing that has been mastering me for years can be overcome not because I become a great person all of a sudden, because I acknowledge and recognize God's ability to work, that is exciting. The God who is able to work in us toward resurrection and toward overcoming those things that master us.
God is calling us into a relationship rooted in true freedom. Freedom from guilt and shame and fear. And he's inviting us today into that relationship. May we be people who can embrace his desire to resurrect us and to free us from slavery and from being mastered. Amen.